Hey everyone, it's Hamish from the Young Investors Podcast. Myself and Brandon are excited to bring you your weekly rundown of the latest business and investing news from around the world. A quick reminder before we get started, any advice provided by Brandon is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives, so consider whether it's appropriate for you. Brandon Vanderkolk is authorized to provide general financial product advice in Australia and is authorized representative number 130795 of Guideway Financial Services Proprietary Limited. AFSL number 420367. Please see the description box for Brandon's financial services guide. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future investment returns. But with that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. All right, welcome back, everyone. Hey, Michotta, how you going, mate? I'm What's cracking? I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going, I'm going well. Just doing the last video for the year, getting it prepared. Yeah. Um, before I uh, take a little bit of a break, go on a bit of a holiday, which is, um, which is exciting. Always uh, nice. Do people to do. have to wait and see what the video is going to be about, or can we talk about it? Um, uh, they, they can wait and see. It's probably out. Actually, Let's... I would probably oh, assume okay. it'll be out by the time this this goes out. Maybe depending yep. how hard I work today on the on the edit right, okay. that I have in front of me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess I can just say I, I'm doing like a just like an overall sort of short six seven minute recap video of all of the big finance stories and economic stories of 2023. So. It's like the good old um, days of YouTube Rewind. Do you remember that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I mean, every, every everyone does that now. Like you have like Spotify wrapped and you have YouTube do, uh, like does their like creator wrapped sort of thing. Everyone has their kind of recap for 2023. And I think um, mm. I think people just kind of like that sort of thing um, just to kind of put everything together in a in a box. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm gonna. I'm very interested to see what you come up with. And then you're off to. Uh, you're off on holidays, right? Yeah, I'm going to South Korea um, for a week for for New Year. So, it's uh, oh, cool. I, it's it's gonna be cold. It's uh, I think I was checking the weather yeah. the other day, and it was like a top of negative five and a low of negative fifteen. So, um, it's wow. it's it's cold. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, I, we don't we don't get too many uh cold like uh Christmas New Year's kind of periods. In Australia, so um, nah, it's never. Ni- it's nice to no, never. <laughs> it's, uh, Absolutely never. Yeah, nice to uh, yeah. Ch- nice change of pace. I think it'll be um, be exciting. Yeah, yeah. And you've not been to South Korea before? I've never. No, been. no, I haven't before. No. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Don't know what to expect. We'll see. What about? Oh, you, you know what they say, Hamish? South Korea's got soul. <laughs> wow. And um, I'll and sit on that. That's one. the end of the episode, guys. Um, we'll just wrap it up. <laughs> I was just, I was like, where am I going to fit in my South Korea's Got Soul joke? <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, so what, yeah, what, what have but, you got going on? What's, uh. Oh, uh, not a lot. I, I've, I'm a bit tired today because I just got back from Perth. I've kind of already had yeah. a week, a week of downtime. So I'm kind of getting back into it in a way. Um, the boys are off on holidays now, so it's just me in the office, but I've got to start preparing all the, the kind of January content for next year. So that'll mm. happen. I might give myself a little break actually over Christmas and Boxing Day, maybe watch a little bit of cricket. But then um, before New Year's, I think I'll be um, slaving away, getting the content ready for next year. Um, But yeah, no, I just just came back from a a nice little trip to Perth. I tried um, flight boarding, which is kind of cool. It's uh, it's like a self-propelled surfboard, but it's got the, um, what are they called? Like hydrofoils where you kind of start to float up in the air that's so much fun it's so much fun that looks such a good time did did you fall off a bunch of times i feel like i would i'm in terribly uncoordinated i feel like i would be terrible at that 
the way I summed it up to the instructor is I've never had so much fun just being pelted by water <laughs> for an hour. Like you do, you just you just eat it constantly. You just off, off, slap, slap, straight into the water. Um, but it is fun, and you do you do pick it up. I was just trying to do crazy stuff like uh, like carve like tight yeah, corners yeah, and stuff yeah. and jumps and things <laughs> like that. But no, it's 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 good fun. It's, I do, I do recommend it if you ever have the chance to go flight boarding. Um, it's very very fun. Mm. Uh, but yes, Hamish, we have a podcast to do today, don't we? So we do. what what are we talking about today, mate? Yeah, we've got, uh, I thought we'd do a little bit of a media uh, recap. Um, we've got uh, the top 10 highest grossing films of 2023 globally. We'll go through that. Oh, okay. And there's actually some, uh, some spicy news in the uh, media merger acquisition uh, landscape that, um, that we'll, we'll I talk about. I think I saw something about that. I think I saw, anyway, I won't spoil mm. it now, but yes, it does sound very interesting. Mm. Huge if true. Yeah. <laughs> Huge if true. Uh, we've also got uh, a survey of consumer finances from the Federal Reserve, which had some interesting data. And, uh, what have you got for us? Um, I have chucked in a, a little thing. Rudy Giuliani is filing for bankruptcy, so that's Uh-oh. interesting. Yeah, um, but more interesting, the the thing that I, I've been interested in is that um, the Red Sea, well, it's a sad story. Uh, the Red Sea is in a bit of crisis with some rebels, but the economic flow-on effects of uh, a passage like that, um, you know, getting shut down or, or shipping being redirected is actually quite quite drastic. So right. I'll talk about that um, as well. And hopefully we can do some Q&A as well. We'll see mm. how we go. Hopefully yeah. we've got some time at the end. All right. Well, with that said, today's episode is brought to you by Seeking Alpha, your one-stop shop for stock analysis, market data, and news. Access expert analysis and news for thousands of stocks. View buy, hold, and sell ratings from members, Wall Street analysts, and Seeking Alpha's own algorithm. Screen for stocks using a variety of fundamental and technical analysis metrics. Access 10 years of financial data and company filings and manage your portfolio by tracking your investments with price alerts so you never miss a buying opportunity again. Click the link in the episode description or head directly to seekingalpha.me forward slash young investors to try Seeking Alpha free for seven days. Um, All right. Where should we begin? Do you want to tell us us about this um, Red Sea crisis? Yeah, it's... uh, it's quite interesting so um the yeah the red sea is the is the area in question and um the the red sea is important well that whole area it's just a massive shipping corridor um because if you think of the world map uh the red sea um and then the suez uh, connects to the suez canal which then connects to the mediterranean so it's a really major shipping lane for uh connecting Europe and Asia, right. which is obviously a, a, a very big deal. Um, so unfortunately, Houthi rebels in Yemen have significantly stepped up attacks on commercial shipping vessels traveling uh, through the lower Red Sea since mid-November in response to Israel's bombardment of Gaza. On some occasion, Houthis have boarded or sought to board merchant tankers. Uh, on others, they have targeted uh, cargo ships with drones and missiles. Damage has been minimal in most cases, but in mid-November, one tanker, the Galaxy Leader, was successfully hijacked. Um, So threats have escalated further in the past week to a point where Maersk, MSC, and other shipping groups have halted or rerouted traffic, while the US has announced a maritime coalition to defend against shipping attacks. 
Um, wow. So it's it's um, it's causing a, you remember how that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal? Mm, yep. How it kind of and you remember that just the, how one little boat, well, it was a big boat, but <laughs> one boat getting stuck in this canal caused like major turmoil throughout the whole world. It's it's kind of a similar situation. Granted, it's different. Obviously, these are um, these are rebels attacking ships and trying to hijack ships going through that area. Yeah. Um, but it has that same kind of effect where it it really chokes that shipping lane or it affects that shipping lane, and then the whole rest of like global trade, but uh, well, particularly between Asia and Europe, is just completely messed up. So. Um, it's it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. this is like the whole like modern day. This is probably a part, I guess, of the modern day piracy kind of stuff, right? Where I think I think for the last, uh, I think recently it's been a lot better. Um, but uh, but for a long time there's been these periods where, um, yeah, ships are just getting hijacked and and people taken hostage for ransom and um and it it, t- it tends to take place through these kind of narrow choke points of um supply chains. Um. Mm. Yeah, exactly right, and and that's the thing. Yeah, this is a bottleneck. It's a choke point, and you would imagine that you, at at all costs, you know, there would be a a lot of countries working together to ensure the uh, that this that this lane, this shipping lane, is a hundred percent safe, like all the time. Yeah. Because yeah, if something goes wrong, then it's big trouble, as we are seeing. Uh, I've got here around 30% of global trade passes through the Suez Canal and the Red Sea. Wow, that's a, that's a crazy so, stat. That's, that's insane. That's a lot. That's a lot of cargo. Um, and as I was saying, you know, you would imagine that they would protect this lane. Well, on Monday, the US has announced that it had assembled a coalition of countries who had agreed to carry out patrols in the southern Red Sea to try and safeguard vessels against attacks. The coalition, called Operation Prosperity Guardian, includes the UK, Bahrain, Canada, France, Italy, Italy rather the Netherlands, Norway, uh, Spain, and Hamish, help me out. How do you pronounce that? Uh, one? You're on your own there. <laughs> Se- Seychelles. Seychelles. Uh, I don't even know how to say that. Damn, I, I'm probably I butchering it. Anyway, uh, prominent shipping companies, including Maersk. Hapag Lloyd and MSC have decided not to use the Red Sea over the past week. According to the Atlantic Council, a think tank, uh, seven out of the 10 biggest shipping companies by market share have suspended operations in the Red Sea. Wow. Um, so instead of cutting through the Red Sea, up through the Suez Canal and into the Mediterranean, they are now going down and around Africa. Wow. Yeah, so it's a, it's a big detour. So they're now going through what they call the Cape of Good Hope route, which is uh, in South Africa. Um, and they say going through that route actually reduces an Asia-Europe's trip effective capacity by 25%, according wow. to UBS. Wow. So yeah, you take quite a hit. Yeah, I wonder like, yeah, I wonder how that, because that's got to ripple out significantly across the supply chain. So... I wonder, yeah, is this a brand new story or has this kind of been developing over a, how, how recent is this? Is this um, this week? It's or? been since, since, oh, since mid-November, mid-November um, but right. I think in the last week it's gotten a lot worse right. or, or, or people have, uh, you know, higher-ups have decided to take action. But you're, you're exactly right and that's why, you know, I don't, I don't really like reporting on 
uh, stories where it's like just conflict this, conflict that. We didn't really cover too much of the war in Ukraine just because it's no. it's kind of just conflict, conflict. Like we don't really talk about Israel, Gaza, that kind of stuff because it's just conflict, conflict. But when it has this massive um, economic impact, um, it's sad, but it is still quite interesting to kind of take a look at and try and uh, try and break down. Yeah. So it's it is kind of interesting. Even some of the flow-on effects, like global logistics managers, are faced with a two-front storm of rising ocean and air freight prices and also stranded cargo. Both are threats to the global supply chain. After three tumultuous years of inflationary pressures and delays from COVID disruptions, which recently seem to have finally been vanquished, the ceiling in ocean freight prices shot up in a matter of hours on Thursday as a result of more vessels diverting from the Red Sea. CNBC has learned that logistics managers were quoted this morning uh, an ocean freight rate of $10,000 per 40-foot container from Shanghai to the UK. Last week, so 10000 bucks. Last week, rates were $1,900 uh, USD for a 20-foot container to $2,400 for a 40-foot container. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a reasonable jump. It's a reasonable jump. Um, and then insane. they also say truck truck rates in the Middle East are now being quoted uh, more than double what they were. Wow! So, mm. geez, that's like a, a four x in the in in the price of um of a shipping container yep. in in just immediately is crazy. Um, yeah, twenty five percent reduction in efficiency having to go around Africa. So it makes sense for this coalition of countries just to come in and try and bolster up this area. Yeah. Make sure that shipping is safe so that, yeah, if, if you're getting the biggest shipping companies in the world going, hey, whoa, man, we're, not, we're not going through there right now. We don't want to lose our cargo. We don't want to lose our, our captains of these big vessels. You know, we don't want to get hijacked. We don't want to lose these boats. Yeah. Then, um, yeah, fair enough that pretty quickly you have major countries stepping in to try and uh, secure the area. Yeah. There's nothing really more you can do, I, I think, beyond actually getting support from different countries, I guess. Uh, I was trying to think back. I did watch a video on on modern day piracy a, a little while ago from Johnny Harris, who had a really good video on it. And I think he was saying right. that um, they began, all the shipping companies started to go, like have schedules when they would go through the canal together. So they would be kind of right. going through together rather than being isolated by a, 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 like a, a like a piracy mm. just kind of coming up and, and just jumping on board. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it seems like it's a difficult kind of problem. And it often stems, I guess, from the economic situations of the, 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 like the poorer countries along those canals, right? Like they're looking for, um, well, at least m- maybe not in this case, but um, at least when it comes to piracy, like it's a, it's a way of making money um, when, yeah. you know, the government ha- doesn't have like a good system for you in, in your country. Yeah. So, you know, just yeah, definitely. going and robbing shipping containers is like, a, or, or taking hostages in, and getting ransoms is, is actually a, you know, just a viable option. Um, given yeah. the situation. Well, so. That's why I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm never quick to judge people, even for things like, you know, stealing, just generally. Like, because a lot of the times people don't want to steal. A lot of the times they have to steal because it's either steal or don't eat kind yeah. of thing. So it is a complex issue and I'm certainly not going to stand up here and say that I'm an expert in the matter, um, uh, nor do I know how to solve it. Um but it is an interesting situation that causes a strong kind of ripple effect in the broader economy. Yeah. Interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's what's happening in the Red Sea. All right. Um, we'll see what happens there. But 
You want to talk about something a little bit happier? Yeah, on a, on a on a on a slightly lighter note, let's talk about movies. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, let's let's Why talk, not? let's talk about fake violence, fabrication, <laughs> <Okay>. um, <laughs> scripted violence. Oh, um, no, so I thought we could take a look at the uh, the top ten grossing films of twenty twenty three, because uh, right. I saw I saw a couple of movies this year, but uh, yeah, yeah, me too, actually. Uh, yeah, I, I was looking through this list and. Um, I haven't seen most of them on the list, so um, which I right. guess is generally the case. I think um, a, a lot of these top tens are always going to be probably movies uh, that are either Marvel, which I'm, I'm not a Marvel person, <laughs> uh, or, or movies that are directed towards more of a kid family audience. Um, yeah, but um, but yes, yeah, so we got we've got our top ten uh, from Global Box Office results uh, coming in at number ten: Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantum Mania. Have you seen that? Seen that movie? No, I thought it was a flop. <laughs> I thought it was a big flop. Still tenth well, on the list. That's the funny thing. Like a lot of some of the names on here, I swear I saw so much commentary about them being flops, and they still made yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. So coming in at number ten, four hundred seventy-six point three million dollars in worldwide uh, box mm, office sales. Um, and that one, of course, is a, a Marvel uh, pr- produced by Marvel Studios um, and distributed by Disney. Uh, Elemental came in at number nine. Pixar animation. Um, $479.8 million in global box office revenue. Uh, number right. eight was Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, produced by Skydance and TC Productions, Tom Cruise's uh, production company. Um, $567.5 million. Uh, yeah, yeah so produced by Tom Cruise's own um, company and then, of course, distributed by um, Paramount. So they kind of work in in partnership. And Skydance for, for a number, I think since 2009, has had um, kind of this kind of co-production uh, partnership with Paramount Pictures, so um, right. they they kind of um, consistently work together on on projects. Mm. Um, another movie I didn't see. Um, I did see yeah, a lot of that jump though. Either. That was that movie with the with the. Uh, <laughs> oh, was it the, the ramp? I guess right. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. With the and the parachute. Yeah, and they just dumped all their marketing into that one into that one into um, that one five second sequence. <laughs> yeah. Come watch this movie just for this jump. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Imagine the cheer when that went off. Woo. In the, in the theater. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's pretty weird when... That's true now that I think about it. The only marketing I saw of that movie was Tom Cruise doing that jump. Yeah. I have no idea what the movie... What, like, any clues about the plot or anything. I didn't even see a trailer that had anything beyond... Tom Cruise uh, bravely taking a ramp off, yeah. off a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Good on you, Tom. Um, anyway, uh, number seven, The Little Mermaid um, came in uh, $568.8 million in the box office. Massive oh, hit. Oh, was that the one that was getting torn to shreds? Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, see, this, this is kind of another one on the list where people were saying, oh, this is going to bomb and, you know, this is controversial and all this stuff. And it's, uh, yeah, it ends up doing $600 million at the box office. So, um, you know. that Yeah, so weird. I, I think, you know, Walt Disney what? has had some pretty bad movies in the last couple of years, but that wasn't one of them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to look at the quick Rotten Tomatoes rating, but it looks, I'm not sure if, I've, oh, yeah, I've gotten the right one here. Uh, oh, 94% of people um, watching the movie liked it. 67% on, on Rotten Tomatoes. 
There you go. Yeah. All right. Coming in at number six, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. That's the other thing. I think um all of these all of these big movies now they're all a part of like these like cinematic universes. Like they're all they're all. I saw an interesting video about um, this theory that big film studios just want to make sequels now. So every the way that they can just make everything a sequel is just by creating these universes or just focusing in on yeah. these universes and then just continuing to just make movies because they generally do reasonably well. Um, and it's just mm. funny to see that it's not even just Marvel doing that anymore. It's, you know, um, who is this? This is, uh, well, this is Marvel, but it's also Sony and Columbia. Um and now Spider Man is a is a is a is a multiverse. It's like yeah. they're all doing it, um, because I guess it. But works. that one, yeah, that one's the um the animated one. Is that oh, right? Oh, is it? Oh, is it? Okay. I'm not sure. I'm I'm not sure actually. I'll, I'll quickly look it up. But they've got. Yes. It's so weird. But like Spider Man's one of those things where um it's got like. Yeah, I think this one is the the animated one. Yeah, across wow. the Spider Verse. But it's it's like it's it's got like the live action universe of mm. Spider Man, and then it's got like the cartoon version of Spider Man, and that's got its own universe. Yeah, uh, I I don't get it anymore, man. It's too much to keep up with. Yeah, it's too much. It's a lot. But anyway, it made uh, six hundred eighty four point nine million dollars at the box office. So we're gonna continue to get more of that. Um, Fast yep. X, Fast and Furious ten. Oh. What a classic. Um, how, 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 Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah. uh, me and Claude. Claude has a great laugh in the office. You've seen that, the scene with Vin Diesel and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, where it's like at the end of the movie and they're like talking to each other and they're kind of standing, um, they, they're standing to one another's side mm. and then talking like ahead, but not, they're like talking to each other, yeah. but not looking at each other, they're standing by the leaves and they're looking ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but that, but the way, the angle that it's filmed at, I think it makes, I, one of them, I can't remember who, makes them look like absolutely ginormous. <laughs> it is so funny. It's such like an optical uh, illusion that it's such a meme. Anyway, sorry, yeah. I totally derailed that's, you there. That's funny. I wonder, I wonder how many movies they're going to make in that series before it, before it ends. Like, do, do you reckon they get to 20? Do, do, do they get to 20? <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know, actually. Um, yeah, that, <laughs> That's so funny. There's another funny video on Fast and Furious and their stunt inflation throughout the series, <laughs> throughout the different oh, really? movies. Like the first series, uh, the first movie, I think that the biggest stunt is like, I don't know, he, like the car goes in the air a little bit and he gets a scratch on his face. And then at the by the by the 10th movie, like there's explosions, there's, you know, there's... there's <laughs> yeah. There's aeroplanes. There's all kinds of stuff going on. It's just funny. Yeah. Like the, they have to just every year just find a bigger, um, some some kind of bigger like stunt that they could do to top the last year. Um, like what's the 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 one in Fast Twenty will be like the Earth explodes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like, like I don't know, some yeah. rocket ship ride to space and then yeah. the Earth explodes. They'll, they'll be in like time knows. machines. Like they'll just they'll be, yeah. Yeah, it'll be a multiverse. Sucked into a black hole and spat out again. Yeah, the multiverse, <laughs> the fast, the fast, the multiverse. fast twenty multiverse announcement. Yeah, you yeah. should check on your Facebook. I just sent you the the picture that I was talking about. Okay, it, it's look. Dwayne the Rock Johnson that that looks absolutely huge. <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. How silly does that look? That's ridiculous. They didn't. Wow. Well, surely someone must have said something when oh, they well. filmed that. Anyway. It, it doesn't matter because they made seven hundred seven point six million dollars at the box office. Um, that one by Universal. <laughs> so well done. Um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 by Marvel again. 
$1.4 million at the box office. Here's one that I saw. Oppenheimer, um, produced by Sin Copy and Atlas Finally Entertainment. Finally a good movie on the list. I know, I know. Well, yeah, we're, we've only got three left. <laughs> um, <laughs> distributed by uh, Universal, $951.4 million at the box office. So or just shy of a of a billion dollars. Um, wow. Unfortunately. That but did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Considering it was, um, it, it's kind of a niche topic, I, I guess. But I mean, it's Christopher Nolan, mm. so I, I guess it makes sense that it would do really, really well. I, I loved yeah. it. I thought it was fantastic. But I wouldn't have. I thought it was I, great. I would be. I've seen it twice. I'm surprised that it's number three on the list. That um, mm. it had. It also got such a wide audience, which um, you know, doesn't often happen with those kinds of movies. Mm. Yeah. No, it's a really good movie. If you haven't seen it, go and see it. It's it's fantastic. Mm. It's actually like. I don't know. They like what you said before. These other ones are just like, oh, let's go and see the latest Fast and Furious movie. Oh, let's go and see the latest Marvel movie. Yeah. Whereas this is just like, just a standalone good movie. Yeah, I wonder how much of a role like if it's like a kids audience movie, like and and parents are going with the kid. I wonder how much of a impact that has on box office results. Like you're buying two yeah, tickets instead true. of one. I guess not really. I guess the kids' tickets probably quite cheap, so it's probably Even not still. Yeah, I don't know. You normally you see like rows of kids though. Like true. One, like yeah, a that's couple of adults that's, will take that's like true. ten kids or something. That's like. that is true. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe 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 not. Maybe not. Um number two yeah. though is another probably uh kids uh, oriented movie. It's the Super Mario Brothers movie. Um produced wow. by Universal, Illumination, and Nintendo. Uh did one point three four billion dollars globally. Um what? And um, yeah, I actually watched it. That's crazy. I, wa- I watched it a couple of months ago. It's actually pretty good. Um, Is it? Yeah. It's. I mean, it, it, it's just like a constant movie of callbacks to the game. Like, so right, I think okay. I think that was the so criticism you- from some people was it's just like it's overly like nostalgia baiting in a way. Right. Um, but uh, but I, I thought it was quite good. And it's I mean it's a kids. It's like the story. You know, there's not there's no crazy twist. Like you know. Like Mario doesn't pull off a mask at the end and he's, you know, he's a villain or something or like, you know, <laughs> this isn't the Joker, but, um, but I thought it was, uh, right. I thought it was pretty good. Okay. Nice. Yeah. There you go. I, so I probably won't see it because I never played Mario as a kid. Oh, I never go. had any Nintendo, uh, consoles. Wow. Really? I think, um, yeah. I was mostly on Nintendo consoles. I had, a yeah. I had, um. Well, wait, was it Game Boy Nintendo? No, I guess not. But they had a lot of Nintendo games it? on it. I'm not sure. I'm pretty um, sure it was. But I had a, then I had a DS and then I had a, a Wii. Yeah, it's Game it Boy's is. Nintendo. Yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think I've, yeah, I've probably had, yeah, I've definitely had more Nintendo consoles then um, than anything else. So, yeah. 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 I, I, well, my parents never let me play video games when I was a kid. It was until... Oh, really? I got, yeah, I remember I got a PlayStation 2 for Christmas one year when I was, I oh, would have been in maybe late primary school. And that just blew my mind. I could not believe that my parents had bought a PlayStation console for me. I was like, are you kidding me? Yeah. But yeah, I, I never had any of the handheld ones. I ne- never had the Nintendo 64 or I never had no. a Wii or I never had a Game Boy. I never had a... I do have uh, a... What was the I do have a Nintendo one? 64, DS? though. Yeah. Um, yeah, DS. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That was like my main... I, I have a... I, is it a Nintendo? No, I have a... What's the older one? The older Nintendo console? I don't know. Um, anyway, I have, I have I one know. of them. 
Anyway. Anyway, yeah, $1.34 cool. $1. billion. Um, and number one, uh, of course, was Barbie, uh, Heyday Films, Lucky Chap Entertainment, NBGG Films, and Mattel. Uh, $1.44 billion at the box office. So congratulations, Barbie. Wow. Yeah, that's um, well done, Margot Robbie, really, because that was uh, not even just for acting, but she's a producer on that film. She's the one that kind of got that film made. She was the like creative driving force. She's a, yeah, she was the producer of that film. She organized getting the uh, director. Uh, she helped out. Obviously she, she said that she, well, she would have been happy not playing Barbie, but the director that she chose wanted Margot to be uh, Barbie. Um, but yeah, she wanted to, she loved uh, the franchise. She wanted to get the film made. She pulled it off and uh, it was a crazy, crazy phenomenon. Um, yeah, I, it was interesting. I thought the movie was just like mid, you know, <laughs> I didn't, I, yeah, I didn't really like, it's just a movie like yeah. Oppenheimer, but maybe this just goes down to personal taste. Like Oppenheimer mm. is a really great story and great film yeah. told in a really compelling way. Um, and quite suspenseful. Yeah. But Barbie was just like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe it just benefited from the kid factor as well, but yeah. it's just like a. It's a generic story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, that, I mean, that's that's most of this list. I'm I'm actually extremely surprised that Oppenheimer is even on this list. I think probably a big part really? of it was the whole, just because of. I mean, look at the other names here. I mean, you're, all of them are all just oh, you know yeah. they're all very they're wide all just audience like franchisey. I, mean, I, I think Oppenheimer is was a thriller, right? Um, and it's a very specific kind of story, and it's you know it's uh yeah I, I don't know I'm just surprised that it, it um. It is among some of these names, but um, mm, yeah, there you go. Uh, and then in terms of the there industry for 2023, so Gower Street uh, Analytics Firm is projecting $31.5 billion in global box office sales for the year. Um, so that projection was made um, based on the, the latest data last week, um, which is less than expected at the start of the year, um, but is more than 2022. So so expected this year, $31.5 billion. Last year uh, was $25.9 billion. 2021 was 21.3 billion but get this pre-covid 2019 was 42.3 billion so Ooh. even in 2023 with some of these massive hits with the whole barbon uh what was it the barbon or that whole uh free basically free publicity that blew up all over social media um even with that they're still lagging by about 25 percent behind pre-covid levels which is kind of crazy because my thought would have been that there would have been this huge pent up demand for cinema after COVID and you would have seen an overshoot into, and then it to come back to normal levels, but that hasn't really happened. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't quite know why that is, but I mean, there's definitely, there's obviously COVID caused a change in the way that we consume movies. There's yeah. now many more options in terms of streaming services and even the yeah. big, you know, distributors have their own, um, have their own streaming services. Yeah. So there's there's that factor, I guess. But yeah, that I mean, I think a lot of the a lot of the kind of twenty nineteen era of movie success was definitely led by cultural phenomenons in in the Marvel franchise kind mm. of culminating. Um Star Wars as well. There were still Star Wars movies in the cinema around that time. Yeah. Um so I think that definitely has a big helping hand, whereas now kind of post-COVID, all that's just been switched, 
switched more <clears throat> switched more to television um because it was an easier format to get the media to people during lockdowns yeah uh, yeah it, it's difficult I don't to know. say that, that's kind of like my hypothesis but yeah it's weird isn't it yeah it's- i think it's possible that covid maybe accelerated this kind of shift from going out to kind of staying in like maybe people who uh, you know maybe wouldn't watch too many movies at home during covid started doing so and found that they kind of enjoyed doing it um maybe there's an element of that it's 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 hard to say um certainly mm. there's more you know content you can consume at home now um and i think that has accelerated over the last couple of years but that's also been around for a while i mean if you wanted to wait for a movie to watch it at home you, you you've been able to do that for quite some time um so yeah, it's, it is confusing that it's, it's so dramatically different. Like if you look year to year before COVID, there are ups and downs, um, depending on what movies come out and the popularity of those movies, but there's certainly never a, you know, a 25% swing. It's like a 5% swing mm. at most between year to year. So there definitely is something happening that I think is around either the, the, the slate of films that have come out or, or the COVID kind of hangover or, or, or the streaming industry growing. There's something, there's certainly something happening. Indeed, indeed, Hamish. Um, should, we, should we keep on, uh, is that all you had to say about the kind of movie industry? Should we keep cracking on to this media merger? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, should we, we, yeah, we can do, we can stay in, um, we can, we can stay in media. Yeah, this just happened. While um, we're here? This just happened just a couple of days ago. Um, which is kind of funny because last week we were talking about all of our predictions. If you haven't seen that episode, we went through all of our predictions that we made last year. And uh, one of the predictions was, or was the question was, will there be a big media merger? Um, and we, we, I actually said there would be, and we didn't see one, of course, and we won't see one mm. in the last 10 days unless we get the fastest merger of all time that happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh but maybe we're going to see one in 2024. Um, maybe, I, maybe I was just a year early. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this week, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery held talks with Paramount Global this week uh, to discuss a potential merger, according to people familiar with the matter. Uh, the merger talks uh, seem to represent the challenge traditional media companies have competing in streaming with newer tech giants. So you have kind of Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, all with very deep pockets to and going out and, and buying movies, rights, TV shows, producing their own movies and TV shows, buying sports rights. Um, whereas a lot of these traditional media companies have these massive debt burdens from previous mergers um, or, or acquisitions. Warner Brothers has $45 billion in debt. Paramount has um, $15 billion in debt. And neither of them have a profitable streaming business yet. So it's been a really tough last couple of years. And, um, and it's going to be a tough next couple of years, which is... Um, uh, why we're now seeing um, some of these businesses get into talks of potentially coming together and, and, and working together. Uh, the talks also raise questions about whether Warner Brothers would ever merge with Comcast subsidiary NBC Universal. Um, so that also just kind of came up in the news uh, um, as whether that merger would be possible as well. Um, yeah. Although it seems like that merger would probably be less likely to happen just because of the regulatory issues that might face because Warner Brothers and Universal are the two biggest movie studios by revenue. So um, that would be be regulators allowing (laughs) the two biggest movie studios to combine into this gigantic um, movie studio that's, you know, significantly bigger than than anyone um, nearby. So that might kind of um, have regulatory issues. And 
Um, both of those companies also own two massive cable news networks, CNN owned by Warner Brothers and MSNBC owned by Comcast. So combining uh, yeah. um, the two out of the three biggest cable news um, networks um, could also be um, an issue. Uh, could be challenging. And then the last combination, which you can just kind of consider <laughs> all, all three combinations, Comcast and Paramount merging, um, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, that would probably never be possible just because they both own broadcast networks. They both own free-to-air uh, networks, so regulators would be unlikely to allow two of those free-to-air networks to join together. Right. Okay. Interesting. So it looks, yeah. So what do you think is most likely? Uh, I have no idea. Um, well, I mean, so the, the, I mean, here's the other thing about the news. I mean, obviously both Warner brothers and Paramount declined to, to comment about the meetings and it's just, a you know, it's, 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 uh, a bit of a it, it, it's pure speculation at this point. Right. Um, there's really nothing on, on, on paper. Um, but I, I, I right. think, it, okay. I think it can make sense for, for some of these businesses to combine. I think it also would make sense. And I haven't seen too much of this yet, but. Um, these big media companies, they have massive libraries of content. A lot of it, which I'm sure has value that's just not being kind of accessed through their streaming services or, or licensing deals. Um, I wonder if we'll see them sell off, you know, parts of their content, you know, like selling off something like a, uh, I don't know, like their Nickelodeon, spinning off the Nickelodeon network, which is kind of a dying part of their cable business. Um, there's probably some assets in there that they can, they can sell off and generate some cash flow, but, um, yeah, it's, it is certainly mm -hmm. tricky. Um, they've got a lot of debt um, and they need to figure out how to get to scale in streaming. And this is one of the ways that they think maybe they can do it. Streaming has definitely proved to be difficult. I just, I don't know. I wouldn't have thought it would be that difficult to make money in streaming. I think, I mean, I, I think that the, the, the difficult part is you've got these media companies coming from a situation where they were able to get a lot of money out of customers. Like it was a very inefficient market where you had to pay a hundred dollars a month to buy a bunch of channels that you didn't want. And streaming has allowed, right. even though you, you can argue that that's kind of happening now with streaming, but at least you can be a little bit more selective. You know, you can just spend $15 on entertainment if you want. You just buy Netflix or you just buy Disney plus. Whereas before it was, you pay a hundred bucks a month and you might barely watch anything you might watch one channel um so i think the industry has been able to collect a lot of revenue from customers um that it that was just an inefficient poor value proposition for the customer and i think that's the that's the the tricky thing that they're grappling with is yeah they can set up a streaming service but they're only going to collect you know 15 20 per month from those customers rather than you know, these enormous affiliate fees and ads that they've been able to collect for, you know, since the eighties. Which is good for the consumer. Definitely works for us. Yeah. But yeah. It makes it much more difficult for these big companies, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, th and that's it. That's all I had. Uh, that's our, that's our right. media, media wrap up. <laughs> all right. Nice. Well, watch this space. Um, let's move on and talk about <laughs> good old Rudy Giuliani. Oh no. <laughs> Love him, hate him. Uh, but Rudy Giuliani filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in New York on Thursday, citing debts that include nearly $150 million, um, in a recent civil judgment for defaming two Georgia election workers while serving as a lawyer for former President Donald Trump. 
The filing by Giuliani came a day after a federal judge in Washington, D.C. ordered him to begin paying election workers Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss monetary damages, and three days after they filed a new suit seeking to bar him from again defaming the mother and daughter. Right. U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Manhattan filing uh, legally uh, pauses for now the $146 million defamation judgment against the former New York uh, City mayor that resulted from a jury verdict last week. Giuliani, while representing Trump in efforts to reverse his loss on the heels of the 2020 election, falsely accused Freeman and Moss of ballot fraud. The claims sparked death threats against them. Um, their attorney, Michael Gottlieb, Gottlieb, in a statement about Giuliani's bankruptcy petition, said this manoeuvre is unsurprising and it will not succeed in discharging Mr. Giuliani's debt to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. So maybe it's a little bit tactical from mm. his perspective. Yeah, that is, um, that is kind of a funny situation, right? Like you, you sue someone and you correctly have been, you've been defamed. So you, you're, you're owed money, but then you can just declare bankruptcy. <laughs> like you probably Oopsie. never see the money. Um, I got no money left. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it is strange that that can, that can happen. I, I honestly, I don't remember. I remember the, the general idea of this story, but I, I didn't, I don't remember the specifics of, of what he said or, or, or where he said it or anything. Um, so I'm a little bit out of the loop on this story, but, um, yeah, $146 million. That's a massive defamation suit. That's enormous. That's um, yeah. Well, it says here, Giuliani's filing estimates he has assets worth between $1 million and $10 million, and estimated current liabilities of between $100 million and $500 million. A worksheet in the filing lists his current actual debts at $151.8 million, um, which most of it is as a result of this case. Um, okay. $146 million defamation judgment. So, yeah, that's, re- that's really all it is. It's just, like, completely crushed. Um, while the defamation judgment is the lion's share of that t- total debt, Giuliani also declared he has nearly $1 million, $1 million in debt uh, to the IRS and New York State Department of Taxation and Finance for unpaid taxes, and that he owes several million in debts to various law firms. Yeah, interesting. Giuliani was sued in September by his former lawyer, Robert Costello, for $1.36 million in unpaid legal fees dating back to t- late 2019. Jeez. Uh, filers used Chapter 11 uh, of the Bankruptcy Code to reorganize their debts and come up with a plan to pay their creditors. Uh, his bankruptcy lawyers, in a statement on Thursday, said, The filing should be a surprise to no one. No person could have reasonably believed that Mayor Giuliani would be able to pay such a high punitive amount from the defamation case. The attorneys said, Quote, Chapter 11 will afford Mayor Giuliani the opportunity and time to pursue an appeal while providing transparency for his finances uh, under the supervision of the bankruptcy court to ensure all creditors are treated equally and fairly throughout the process. So it seems, yeah, seems like this is just the beginning. But yeah, it sounds as though he's been handed this uh, uh, this smackdown in terms of having to pay $146 million in defamation, um, um, I don't know, damages, and that's toppled him. Hmm. And uh, now he's uh, declared bankruptcy as a, a bit of a pause tactic, but I, I have no idea what will happen from here. Yeah, I don't know. No sounds, idea. Sounds like he hasn't paid anyone in a while. He hasn't paid his taxes. He didn't pay his lawyer. He didn't. Pay- 
<laughs> sounds that way, doesn't it, Hamish? It definitely sounds that way. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure what else to say on this. It's um, it's a, it's, no, it's, just, a, it's just kind of a Too funny, I just, funny story. Yeah. Don't say things that aren't true. That's the lesson to take <laughs> away from this. Yeah. Don't defame people. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, there you go, eh? There, there you go. go. All right, Hamish, back over to you. All right. Um, let's. Uh, oh yeah, let's let, let's look at this uh, survey of consumer finances from uh, the Federal Reserve. They do a, a survey every uh, every three years, uh, and uh, and look at the assets and liabilities and all sorts of things for. Uh, uh, American households, and there's some Australian data in here that I'll talk about as well. Um, but uh, the kind of the headline was that uh, 58% of American households now own shares up from 53% recorded in uh, 2019. Uh, and it's actually the highest uh, figure uh, ever recorded since, um, since they began the survey in 1989. So the highest percentage of American households own uh, shares than, uh, more, more than ever before. Wow. Uh, the figure includes uh, shares held directly uh, in retirement accounts, pooled investment funds, and other uh, managed assets. Uh, and the data shows how much of an impact COVID has had on uh, retail investors participating in the market. Um, so um, COVID, I think, and I'll, I'll talk through some of the, the specific um, uh, COVID-related things a little bit later, but certainly since 2019, um, and partly, uh, I think as a result of people, you know, staying at home and, and, you know, there being lots of financial events going on, um, a lot of more people have decided to, uh, participate in the market in particular, directly held shares increased from 15% in 2019 to 21%, uh, in, uh, 2022. Um, and, and that was the largest, uh, increase, um, on record, uh, since the beginning of the survey. Mm. Uh, the median value of household shares also halved to 15,000 uh, in 2022. Um, uh, yeah, halved to 15,000 in 2022. Um, right. Which, which may seem, you know, oh, well, what happened to everyone's shares? Well, it's actually likely more indicative of people with less money joining the stock market. So you've kind of got um, more people at the bottom end of the, of the income um, spectrum or, or the income, uh, yeah, spectrum um, uh participating in the market, which brings down that, um, brings down that medium value. Would it also just be the fact that 2022 was a bad year for the market? Like the market dropped a I, fair chunk. So the I, I, median value of people's shares also fell. Yeah. I think that definitely probably, that probably yeah. plays a role. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and then when looking at us households who own shares by household income, um, we can actually see specifically that there are a lot more people at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum uh, uh, joining the stock market. Uh, every percentile right. saw an increase in the number of households owning stocks uh, of the 80th to 100th percentile. So these are the highest household income over 90% of households now own shares, which I shouldn't be too surprising. Interesting. Um, yeah. People who have a lot of disposable income tend to um, look for ways to invest it. So it makes sense. But 90% is- Is it the chicken or the egg though? Is it the high disposable income allows them mm. to buy the shares or are or the they shares, in the- yeah. Or the shares that have boosted them up to the 80th to 100th percentile? It's probably- Probably a bit prob of both. Probably a bit of both. Yeah. But 90% probably a bit of both. nevertheless is um, obviously a very high figure. But even the bottom- uh, uh, 30th, uh, 29th, yeah, 20, the bottom 29th percentile, uh, now about 18% of those households own shares. Um, so obviously, you know, it's far less. And again, you would expect that if you have less disposable income, then, um, you're going to have less money to invest. Um, 
But uh, the, the, the lower percentiles did see massive increases in the percentage of households owning shares. Um, oh, that's good. Which I, I think is a, a great thing. I think more people participating yeah. in the market, growing their wealth. Um, I'll add a little, just a small uh, caveat to this. The last time households were participating this much, uh, <laughs> indirectly held shares, so individual shares, uh, was 2001. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, Mesh, um, why you got to bring us down like that? Uh, which, uh, which of course was, um, you know, right around the internet bubble. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's also a feature that does tend to happen, unfortunately, is, um, you know, when there's these bubbles going on, um, people talk with their friends and, you know, your Uber driver is talking about shares and everyone's kind of feeling like they don't want to miss out. Um, yeah. so there is an element of that, but I think generally speaking, uh, the increase we're seeing now is probably a different thing than the increases that happen kind of cyclically due to speculation. In the last mm. couple of years, there's a lot of new, easy to use apps. Brokerage f- uh, free trading is pretty new the last few years. Fractional shares uh, for people who yep. just want to buy pieces of shares um, and smaller minimum trade amounts. All of those things are fairly new um, to the market. Uh, there's also just more information about shares easily obtainable. I mean, uh, just thinking, you know, investing podcasts, YouTube channels, blogs, all of these things didn't really exist before COVID in a big way. Um, like the, the boom of kind of finance and investing information online kind of started in around 2018, 2019. And and certainly in the last couple of years, it's, it's really blown up. Um, so I'm sure that contributes in a meaningful way as well. Um, yeah, I think the the last like uh, clearly the last twenty years have have been massive for stock market accessibility. Yes, but particularly I'd say the last five or so have been particularly like big big leaps forward in terms of accessibility of investing for most people because of the things you say the fractional shares, the brokerage, the free yep. brokerage, um, just the number of brokers out there that are marketing and are pushing features that make it easier than ever before to get started. Now, some of that's deceptive for sure. Some of that's, Hey, it's easy. It's never been easier. Come and invest, like lure you in. Cause obviously yeah. they charge you brokerage fee. Um, but generally speaking, I think it's a good trend and yeah. I had like, it's never been easier to invest in the stock market. There are so many different ways of doing it now. Yeah. So many different apps, different structures, different, this, different, that, that, um, yeah. yeah, the accessibility has gone up a lot now that I think about it. And I think, I mean, just, I think it's just kind of human nature. I think a lot of people, when they first start investing, they are probably not going to do it the right way. They're probably going to speculate a little bit. So if people are speculating with $50 and losing it versus $1,000, $5,000 or even more um, when they're much older, f- investing for the first time, I think that's a good thing. Um like certainly there's, you know, yep. there's certainly, you know, an element of people just gambling on, on the stock market. But I, I think, uh, you know, some people just need to go through that. Like uh, some people Fail need, fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> some people need to learn, you know, some people need to use options with $50 or something to find out that it's so they get incredibly, decimated. Yeah. incredibly dangerous. And it's better to lose yeah. $50 than to do that, you know, when you're much older with $10,000 and really, you know, making a real uh, dent in your net worth or anything, something like that. Mm. It's one thing I'm very thankful for, actually, uh, for learning those lessons early. Yeah. It's actually what, like an, another instance, this is a bit grim, but um, in my first year of riding a motorbike, I had a crash. Oh, and no. I'm glad that I, I'm 
kind of glad it was a small crash. I didn't really get hurt very much, but I'm glad that that happened to me then mm. because that completely changed how I ride motorbikes, mm. um, which will probably, you know, hold me in good stead for the future. But it, it is that kind of, I, if, if you start investing and then you kind of mess up and make some mistakes early on, just that's, that's probably a good thing in the long run that you're learning those lessons early. Yeah. Um, because yeah, it's much better making those mistakes when you're playing around with a hundred bucks than fifty grand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then just some uh, data comparing U.S. households to Australian uh, households. According to the Organization of Economic Cooperation, U.S. households uh, had thirty nine percent of their financial assets in equities in stocks in twenty twenty two, which is uh, massive. Almost forty percent mm. of their financial assets in stocks. Australians, by wow. comparison, have just eighteen percent of their assets in equities. And I think it's, that's uh, likely a result of a couple of factors. One, and I'll, maybe there's others you can think of, but um, the, the two main ones I could think of was a uh, superannuation program. So we kind of definitely. force people to invest into a basket of assets beyond equities, uh, bonds, infrastructure, yeah. property. And then uh, speaking of property, we have an incredibly strong housing market, which for those who do own a home, I'm sure uh, if you've owned a home for at least even just a few years, it's probably grown in value and become a, a much larger yeah. part of your financial assets. Um, yep. and for a lot of people, they, that's just the, your biggest investment anyway. Um, you know, you yep. just, you know, that's your nest egg. So I think, um, those are probably the two biggest factors as to why we have such a smaller percentage of assets in equities than, than the U S yeah. which, yeah. I wonder is superannuation 10% or 12% now? Uh, I can't even remember. I was, is it 12? I thought it was 9.5 or did they up it from Yeah, 9. I think 5? they're upping it. I can't remember superannuation. I wonder what it is. Uh, the super guarantee employees have to pay super contributions of 11%. That's 11 for employees, okay. ordinary time earnings. Yep, there you go. So that's, I, I don't know how that compares around the world, but in Australia, we literally have this retirement account where we, we're forced, employees are forced to put 11% of their income into it. <laughs> yeah. So, and you can't yeah, access it until, I think, what is it? It's 65 at the moment, I think, is yeah, the, I think something is the like age that. or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So, um, I think it's generally a good thing. Yeah, yeah, it is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you play the probabilities. Chances are, not everyone will make it to that point, but most people will. So it makes sense that we're kind of forced just to chip away a little bit to invest it in our superannuation and and have that grow over time. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it, it it's really hard for I think people to. Uh, it, it's kind of understated how hard it is to consistently put away money on your own like of your own free will to set aside money to invest it is very difficult. If you've been doing it for a while, then it, it gets easier because you're just in the habit of doing it. It's, 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 you know, you've got everything scheduled and everything, but it is, um, it is quite a difficult habit to form. So I think that's why superannuation is, is very good from like the first time you get a job, you're immediately investing, um, whether you like mm. it or not. <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah, no, it is. It's, it's good. It's good. Yeah. Cool. All right, Hamish, do we have any um, anything else on that? No, that's uh, that's it. No, that's, that's it. That's all we got. All right, well, let's finish off uh, just with a question or two of Q&A and then uh, let's bounce out of here. So, as always, if you'd like to ask a Q&A question, guys, leave us a comment on the most recent version of the podcast on YouTube or you can drop it in the Spotify question box if you would like on Spotify. Um what one should we do, Hamish? Yeah, let me. Uh, I'll ask you one of these. Um, 
I'll ask you this one. Uh, what are your What is your opinion regarding dividends? You mentioned Apple specifically in this podcast. This must have been from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, how does one evaluate a dividend strategy for a company? How should I, as an investor, uh, as an investor, value different dividend strategies? I don't have a huge amount to say on dividends. Um, I think dividends are okay. I think just when you're looking at companies, you just have to remember to factor it in. So if you're modeling out that you want to get a 15% return per year and you and the company pays you a 3% dividend, just make sure that you factor that in that you're already getting 3% for free just for through the dividend. Um, I think dividends, you know, the, the, the thing that I talk about is just to check whether a company should be paying a dividend. Like I'm not, I really don't get caught up on whether a company does or doesn't pay a dividend. It doesn't really bother me. Yeah. I typically, typically prefer, this is just general bias of mine, I typically prefer internal compounders, the companies that are just taking their cash and have good uses for it. So they're investing it internally back in their own business. Um, so they don't want to pay a dividend because it's better used in, in it's better off in their hands. Um, so I just make sure that, you know, make sure that if, if a company is not paying a dividend, their return on investor capital is very high. They are making those good investments. Yeah. But apart from that, are there any, are there any other things you'd add to that? I don't, yeah. That's, that's pretty much everything. The, the, yeah. The main thing I just look at is, is the company, you know, producing a higher return on, on, on the, on their equity, let's say. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if uh, you essentially want the company only, as you said, to be retaining, uh, and reinvesting money that they can invest effectively. So maintaining that high return on the, the, the equity in the company and everything else should come out to you as a, as a shareholder. Um, but I, I don't, um, I don't put any weight on dividends over retained earnings per se. Uh, both of them yep. deliver return to you. It's just in a different form. One is, one is cash and, uh, the other one is in capital appreciation. Um, and the other thing to remember is if you're getting a dividend, you've, you've personally got to allocate that capital. Like, uh, the company is saying, we can't allocate this at whatever, 12% per year or 15% per year. So you have to find another stock or another company to allocate it. So, um, dividends aren't just like, you know, they, they are cash, they are nice, but you know, that, that does push the capital allocation decision to you. Whereas personally, um, it's kind of nice if the company can reinvest all of their earnings at a 15% return. And the only decision I have to make is to invest in that company. Um, and then they can, they can do those decisions. So, yeah. 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 Nice. Um, unless you're an income investor, then you just love dividends because that's what you live off of. Yes. <laughs> you're yeah. no longer reinvesting. You're just loving, loving life and sipping pina coladas on a beach. Yeah. Um, all right, Hamish, let me ask you this. How much consideration do you give to tax when making investment decisions? Um, How do you think about tax? It's a pretty hard one. I, yeah. I don't really think about it too much. I don't think... I don't think I really do all that much. I mean, yeah, I, I don't really think I, I don't really think I do all that much. I mean, tax. I think it's because like we we plan on holding companies for a very very long time, so we're not yeah. we're not thinking like oh I'm going to hold this for a year and then I'm going to sell it and then I've yeah. got this capital gain, capital loss, or whatever it might be, and we've got to think about our tax. I mean, there's definitely like. I don't know how this works all around the world with different tax codes, different countries, but that you can definitely think about timing of capital gains and capital losses in Australia. Um, 
yeah. capital losses you can lock in and they carry forward indefinitely to offset future capital gains. So there is a strategy there. Yeah. Um, there but generally speaking, I mean, you want to have capital gains, right? That's what you're, you're hoping yeah. for. But I think in terms of uh, uh, how much consideration you, you give... Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'd only consider it if I was really like, okay, I, I, I need to sell now, uh, I, I'm, mm. but I need to lock in this big gain. How do I best do that to minimize mm. my tax that I need to pay? But Yeah, yeah. But I, I guess I don't really consider tax too much because just by nature of uh, the strategy of, of long-term investing, that's probably one of the best ways you can mitigate your tax, right? So you're not dealing with these short-term capital gains. Um but other tax considerations, I'll be honest, I just defer to my accountant. <laughs> like yeah. if I if I have to, yeah, I mean, whatever it is. Um, if there's if I have capital gains, if I have capital losses every year, I just I just say, you know, what, what's the best thing I should do? And then he tells me because yeah. it's his it's his area of expertise. <laughs> and tax is yeah. like this whole, you know, it's it's a whole beast. It's a whole field yeah. in of itself. Um, and it's obviously important to know, you know, um, a little bit about tax. Um, but um. Yeah. But yeah, I, I generally defer to my accountant for any complex think, tax stuff. I think that's honestly a, a good point to take out of it. Like a lot of us investors are very much the do-it-yourself kind of variety. Mm. Um, that's why that's why you know we're not going to just give our money over to some fund. We do take the time and we invest our money, and that does give us that kind of do-it-yourself mentality. But I think you raise a good point: is that if you are concerned about anything to do with tax, just go and see an accountant. Because yeah. at the end of the day, they're they're one of the professions where if you if you get a good accountant, they pay for themselves. Like the yeah. fee that they will charge you. Well, you say, like, that's definitely in my case. The fee that I charge my accountant is so small compared to what he saves me in tax that it's a no-brainer. And plus, I don't have to do the work. Yeah, (laughs) it's just maths. It's like, you pay me this and I'll save you this. It's like, okay. (laughs) All right. Well, as long as that number is higher than that number. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's a good deal. So I Um, think, and that's that's the other thing, like... Something I've learned, I used to be very much do-it-yourself, but I've learned when it comes to tax, get someone to help you out because they will know a lot more than you. And I've also found um, having a lawyer that knows the letter of the law and says what you can and can't do and how you can structure business and how you can set things up and that sort of thing. Those are two professions that I will pay for every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. All right. Cool. Nice. Let's bounce. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in as per usual. Um, are we going to have a week off next week? What are we doing yeah. next week, Hamish? I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not in the country, so I think we'll have South a week Korea. off. South Korea. Yeah. <laughs> I'll call you up, dude. Yeah, yeah. I'll call you up. Call me up. I'll, you know, I'll be in my, uh, my like, snow jacket, like, big, big... Uh... <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hope you have a good time, dude. I Thank hope you, you have an absolutely you. awesome trip. I'm sure I will. Um, enjoy your Christmas and New Year's. You too. Um, and same goes to everyone out there. Thanks very yep. much for your support this year, guys. We will be... So we'll be away next week. So we'll say now have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And we will see you, I guess, early next year. Yeah. Is that right? Yep. 2024. We shall. All right. 2024, baby. Let's go. All right, guys. Have a good holiday period. Um, Hope you've enjoyed the podcast throughout the year. And we'll see you guys very soon. See you guys.